and welcome to the Bradley Lectures Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Wolford. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Francis Fukuyama, Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute, author of The End of History and the Last Man, and most importantly for today, the deliverer of a Bradley Lecture on the subject of his book, The Origins of Political Order, in 2012 at AEI. Dr. Fukuyama, thank you for joining me today. Great pleasure to be with you. Of course, happy to have you on. And you know, when this episode comes out, it's going to be in the immediate sort of aftermath, hopefully not fallout, of the presidential election. So in the face of all of that blusterous, fleeting things that come around a kind of climactic election season, we're going to be focusing today on maybe more fundamental, possibly more durable sort of aspect of political life, which is the origins of political order. But Dr. Fukuyama, before we begin listening to your lecture, I wonder if you have any thoughts for our listeners on how they may connect these big sorts of you know, sedimentary layers of political order to these more kind of incidental events of political processes like elections. Do one of these things, order or elections, tell us about the others? How do they relate? I think that elections are one component of a triad of institutions that constitute a modern political order. The first leg is the state, which ideally should be a modern state, meaning impersonal, serving public interests. The second is the rule of law, which puts limitations on the power of the state. And then the final leg are democratic elections, which hopefully make the government's policies and decisions reflect the will of at least a majority of the population. And I think the three of these really have to be understood in conjunction with each other because the state by itself is all about power. It's about concentrated power to enforce laws and make policies, defend the community and the like. But it needs to be balanced by two institutions of constraint. So the first is the rule of law, and the second are elections. And I think getting that balance right is actually quite a difficult thing to do because you want a state to be powerful enough to actually do things that are necessary for the community, but not so powerful that it can abuse the rights and interests of the citizens who make up the society. And I think that's the basic challenge, and that's why we have elections, is to support that third of those three sets of institutions. We'll hear more about the balancing act between those institutions in Dr. Fukuyama's lecture, which we'll start now and discuss further in just a few minutes. So let me begin by uh, doing some definitions. Uh, where does political order come from in the first place? The view that is expressed in Hobbes and Locke that human beings are somehow primordially individualistic is, in fact, I think, not correct. Uh, that, in fact, uh, human beings are by nature social creatures I draw two broad conclusions, which is that the origins of human sociability lie in two principles. The first that the great biologist William Hamilton called uh, inclusive uh, fitness, uh, which basically says that people will be altruistic towards uh, other uh, members of their species in proportion to the number of genes that they share. And the other one being the principle of reciprocal altruism, that many species develop 
cooperative behaviors by interacting with each other over time and exchanging favors for favors. So basically, what you're talking about is friends and family. The natural mode of human sociability is friends and family. You do not need to teach this to any human being that's born alive. I think one of the continuing challenges in establishing a modern political order is that human beings will default back to friends and family in the absence of powerful incentives to behave otherwise. As I define a political order, a modern political order, I uh, say that there are three broad categories of institutions. So the first institution is the state. The state, I use Max Weber's definition, it's a monopoly of legitimate violence over a, a given territory. The state is all about concentrating power and being able to use it to enforce the state's wishes through, um, uh, you know, uh, hopefully through a legal system. But in any event, uh, the state is all about enforcement uh, and power. A modern state, uh, and again, I'm using Max Weber's definitions, a modern state is one that treats citizens impersonally, meaning that the earliest states are all outgrowths of the ruler's family. It's all a matter of friends and, and family, those biological principles. But as uh, political orders become larger and more extensive, that ceases to work, and you need a state that can actually uh, extend its rule over a large uh, area, uh, and it needs to be able to treat citizens indifferently so that you don't have to be the cousin of the ruler in order to get uh, some kind of benefit. The second uh, basket of institutions has to do with the rule of law. The rule of law, in, I mean, there are as many definitions of the rule of law, I think, as there are law professors. Uh, the one that I use in uh, my book uh, is that the rule of law is essentially a constraint uh, on the executive. Uh, that if the ruler of a state can make up the rules as he or she goes along, it isn't the rule of law. The rule of law has to apply to the most powerful uh, political actor in uh, the society for it to be the rule of law. And it has to be, I think, as a matter of practical necessity, uh, it has to be embedded in a separate, independent, judicial institution that is not under the heel of, uh, of the government. That's what the rule of law is all about. Then finally, the third basket of institutions has to do with institutions of accountability. Basically, what you're trying to get at is that the rulers ought to serve the common interest, the common good, rather than the particular good of the ruling house or the prime minister or the president or whatever. Now, for reasons I'll get into, I think that this is particularly important in the Asian political tradition, because a lot of what Confucianism as a historical phenomenon was about was trying to educate the ruler, uh, much like the education of Plato's guardians, uh, in order to make them uh, have a sense of, of uh, benevolence or, or dedication towards the good of their society as a whole, as opposed to just the private good of their dynasty and so forth. All right, so those are the three categories of institutions. The state is all about power and the concentration of power. Rule of law and uh, accountability are all about limitations on power. All right, and so in a sense, the 
miracle of modern politics is that you can have states that are unbelievably powerful in their ability to enforce their wishes. You know, the United States president can order nuclear strikes on anybody he wants uh, in a certain sense, but it's limited by law and by uh, procedural uh, rules that uh, make it impossible for the president to actually act uh, arbitrarily. So in a sense, the question is, how do we get to this situation where you've got this balance uh, among these three uh, sets of institutions? So uh, I'm going to tell you stories in each of those three baskets about where they came from. Part of this thesis, as I understand it, is that this process of, of building this balance between these three institutions is an historical process, right? It's not just that we hit some sort of set of preconditions and all of a sudden we have political order, right? It takes time to form this kind of balance. Am I correct in understanding it that way? Well, that's right. There's been a long discussion among political scientists and historians about sequencing because none of these three institutions came into being all at once. They really came in a certain order, and the order depended on what part of the world you were living in. So in China, for example, it was really the state and a pretty modern state at that that appeared first. The rule of law never really appeared at all, and democracy has only come about in certain Chinese cultural territories like Taiwan or nearby countries under Chinese influence like Korea or Japan. Whereas in Europe, the sequence was quite different. The first of these institutions to take root was the law, followed by a modern state, and then finally followed by democracy. In the United States, we have yet a different order in which law and democracy were there right from the beginning. What we never had was a strong modern state really until the progressive era at the end of the 19th century. So the order in which these were established very much affects the subsequent durability of these institutions. And that's something that really does vary by historical period and by the society in which it occurs. They all, as I understand it, share a common kind of origin in a kind of more fundamental sociability, correct? Well, that's correct. I think that human beings have individual selfish interests. That's, there's no question about that. But they're also deeply social creatures who bond with one another, who love to follow norms that are set by the other human beings around them. They join together in communities, and they really don't have satisfying lives if they're not connected to other people. We can certainly read a lot presently about worry, I think, over divisions in sociality in America when it comes to political divisions and partisanship. And, you know, we're heading into Thanksgiving not long after these upcoming elections, and results are certainly going to probably divide some families at dinner table. I think, interestingly, some people may look at what they think of as sociability, right, what they think of as affinities and our political processes as sort of outgrowths of our political order, and think that we've somehow warped things back around, that now we have a political process or, or a political order participation in a process that can actually disunite friends and families over, over sharply held political distinctions. And I'm curious if you have any thought about that, and this notion that somehow political order or participation in it may challenge some fundamental bonds of sociality. Well, they should. Like I said, <laughs> you can't organize a large-scale society if for example, all of the people you hire into a bureaucracy have to be relatives of yours. Sure. And the whole idea of a civil service exam, which was really invented in China, but adopted very widely as states modernized, 
begins with the premise that you need to hire qualified people rather than friends and relatives. And so this inclination we have to prefer friends and relatives is something that you know rubs us the wrong way because of these natural inclinations, but it's absolutely necessary to building any kind of a large-scale society. You know, and we've learned this, we've had to learn this over and over. You know, the Chinese learned this in, ter in, in the period of intense warfare that lay at the beginning of their civilization, where they realized if you only hire your relatives, you're going to lose battles. Abraham Lincoln learned this in the Civil War when you had to hire cronies to be the generals of the Union Army who turned out totally incompetent. And it was only gradually that he figured out a way of appointing generals that actually knew how to fight, like Ulysses Grant. And so this is something I think that has happened, this effort to get beyond friends and family that has occurred repeatedly in, in human history. We're going to begin with China. Uh, I think that the Chinese have never gotten adequate credit for having created not just a state, but a modern state. Uh, and they did this 2,300 uh, years ago. And by a modern state, I mean a state that was uniform, rational, run by a bureaucracy based on reasonably transparent rules, uh, and that could enforce its will over uh, a very large um, uh, a, a very large uh, polity. Now, if you ask the question, where did this Chinese state, why did the Chinese get to this point where they had a modern state at such an early point? And the point is 221 BC with the Qin unification of China. Uh, the answer, uh, unfortunately, is war. The relationship of war to the growth of modern state institutions in Chinese history is absolutely clear. You know, Charles Tilley, uh, is famous for his line uh, talking about modern Europe, early modern Europe, that the state makes war and war makes the state. And this is absolutely the case in early Chinese history. So it used to be at the beginning of the spring and autumn period that war was just a matter uh, of aristocrats riding around on chariots, but they discovered that actually if you recruited peasant armies, uh, they could be much more effective in um, uh, in beating uh, uh, chariots, but if you wanted to recruit peasants, you had to have a conscription system, and you had to have a taxation system to extract resources from the countryside. And then, in order to have a taxation system, you had to have a civilian bureaucracy. You had to have a means of getting those tax revenues uh, to the capital so that they could then be deployed through a big administrative system uh, to provision these armies. And so there's a kind of natural progression from a patrimonial state to a modern state that is driven by the necessities of uh, warfare. And unfortunately, in human history, war is more often than not one of the major routes towards, um, uh, towards political modernity because, unfortunately, ordinary economic motivation uh, is oftentimes not sufficient to get all of the players in a particular you know, situation to agree to give up power uh, and centralize it in you know, the hands of a, uh, of a single state. I mean, if that were enough, the EU would be a, you know, it would be a country long ago. Uh, but yeah, so if Germany invaded France and Italy, maybe that would happen, uh, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, so, 
and, and you think about the other big unifications that have happened. Italy, Germany in the 19th century, uh, military force is, is extremely uh, important in pushing forward that kind of modernity. Now, there are many other cases of this happening. I would say in our own country, uh, it's been the pressure of war. You know, we developed first a modern, you know, it, Washington, D.C., this town before the Civil War had, you know, maybe 40,000 inhabitants uh, uh, at the beginning of the Civil War. By the end of the war, it had a couple hundred thousand. You think about the impact of World War I and World War II on uh, the growth of the American state, the centralization of institutions, this big five-sided building, you know, sitting across the Potomac River. Uh, all of these are uh, components of the American state uh, which would not have existed but for military uh, competition. So this is, uh, this is very important. Now, the second um, story I want to tell is about the origin of the rule of law. Um, I said that the rule of law, in my definition, and believe me, there are plenty of other definitions, but by my definition, the rule of law is a constraint, it is a legal constraint of rules that reflect the, um, you know, basically I think the moral consensus of the community that acts on the ruler, the most powerful person in the country. And where do you get this kind of rule of law when the guys with the guns can obviously just shoot or, you know, with the swords or, or whatever can uh, simply kill the people that uh, are trying to impose law on them. And I think the answer to that is pretty simple. It is religion, that wherever a rule of law tradition has emerged, uh, it has almost always been uh, as a result of a religious establishment that, first of all, presides over rules, um, uh, whether they come from the Talmud or the Bible uh, or the Quran uh, or the Vedas, uh, that creates a hierarchy of um, jurists who interpret the law and then exists as a separate institution to apply the law. And so in all of these traditions, in the Jewish tradition, in Christian Europe, uh, in the Hindu world, and in the Muslim world, uh, you had rule of law in the sense that I am talking about. Uh, and each one of these had major um, legal jurisprudential uh, institutions created that were separate from the state. The state could not appoint, um, well, um, by a certain point in their history, the state actually could not appoint these religious, uh, these religious jurists. Now, how do you get to a powerful, independent judicial institution? And this is where the story of the investiture crisis in the 11th century is very important, because at the time, the Catholic Church was what Weber called Caesaropapist, meaning that, first of all, priests and bishops could marry, and they were appointed by the political rulers of the time. So, for example, any number of popes in this period was actually, were actually appointed by the Holy Roman uh, Emperor. And since priests and bishops could marry and have children, uh, they would get involved in the nepotistic court politics of those parts of Italy and Germany where, uh, where the church uh, operated. This changed uh, as a result of a long struggle uh, that was launched by a monk named Hildebrand who emerged later as Pope Gregory VII, uh, who in many respects I think was very much parallel to Martin Luther in terms of his unbelievable will and um, 
ability to mobilize uh, a revolt against the corruption in the church. What Gregory did was first to say that the church cannot gain moral authority unless you prohibit uh, priests and bishops from marrying, because as long as they care more for their children than for the good of the church and for God's word, then the church will never have the authority to limit, uh, you know, to, to, to do his job. So remember, this recurrent principle of friends and family constantly reasserting itself. The other big thing that Gregory did was to uh, demand of the emperor that the church hierarchy, meaning himself, have the right to appoint priests and bishops, and that the secular authorities stay out of this. He then went up against the emperor. He excommunicated the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Henry IV. He um, then uh, launched a really 30 years war between his allies, who were the Norman kingdoms in southern Italy, uh, against the emperor and his parties. Uh, this didn't really uh, end until about the 1140s with the, with the Diet of Worms, uh, in which there was finally a settlement, uh, and in which the emperor finally agreed that they would give up the right to appoint priests and bishops. And this is really the point uh, at which the, the Catholic Church uh, achieved institutional autonomy uh, from political authority. The other th big thing that happened at this point was the resurrection of the Corpus Juris Civilis, the Justinian Code, which was found by the papal party in uh, an attic in northern Italy, which the church used as a weapon. This was the great compilation of Roman law uh, that was done by the Byzantine emperor Justinian in the 6th century uh, that then was imported. It was retranslated uh, back into Latin, uh, and it was used as the basis for the curriculum at the great and really original Western law school, the University of Bologna, that established a legal faculty into which uh, students from all over Europe uh, came, taking the Justinian Code with them. And so, in some sense, the origins of the civil law tradition in continental Europe uh, date back to this uh, point. So the rule of law, the tradition of the rule of law, the tradition of training lawyers, the tradition of law schools, the tradition of having an independent juridical institution is all set by religious uh, authorities. In Western Europe, the, um, the existence of this early rule of law was incredibly important for the development of Western institutions because of these three categories of institutions, the state, the rule of law, and democratic accountability, it was the rule of law that developed first. You had a transnational rule of law across uh, most of Europe uh, well before you had the rise of modern states that sought to centralize power. And it meant that the state building exercise in Europe was always much more limited than what would happen in China, where you didn't have this kind of constraint. All right. So this uh, then brings me to the accountability institutions and where they come from. And here I would say that uh, it's a little bit uh, ironic uh, that, in my view, the reason that we have democracy in the world uh, is because one particular feudal institution uh, succeeded in surviving into the modern uh, era, and that institution was the parliament. Uh, at the beginning, or at, at the end of the Middle Ages, Every European country had uh, a feudal institution called estates uh, in um, 
France, there were parlement or sovereign courts. In Spain, there were the Cortes. In Russia, there were the Zemsky Sobor. In Hungary, Poland, there were the Diets. Uh, and in England, it was the uh, it was the Parliament. And so the usual Whig history says, well, yes, of course, the Parliament rose up against the Stuart monarchs and you know fought him and achieved modern constitutional government. But what is not satisfying about that account is why it didn't work anywhere else, uh, why it was that you didn't get democracy across all these other uh, European countries, but why it emerged only in England by the end of the 17th uh, century. And there, I think this story has a lot to do with very particular English institutions. Uh, one of them is the common law, uh, the fact that law and property rights were well established in England uh, all the way back to the 11th, 12th, in fact, really from the Norman uh, invasion, which is the moment that the common law really gets established in uh, England. And in a sense, the English Civil War was a reaction to these ambitious Stuart monarchs trying to uh, undermine the law through institutions like the, the court of the, of the star uh, chamber that was basically a kind of extrajudicial uh, instrument for going after the king's enemies. All right, so in other words, um, in the late 16th and 17th centuries, every monarch in Europe was trying to behave like a Chinese emperor. They were trying to create a centralized, powerful, bureaucratic state uh, that was uniform, that could enforce laws, uh, so on and so forth. And it worked in a number of countries. It worked in France. So under Louis XIII and XIV, you had the emergence of a very powerful uh, centralized state, although the birth of that modern French state really took the revolution because the other half of it was this extreme form of corruption uh, in the form of venal offices that uh, the state had to sell off in order to raise uh, revenues for itself. Um, it didn't work in Russia because the czar was able to basically conscript, conscript the whole uh, nobility uh, into his uh, personal service. Uh, in a way, Poland and Hungary are opposite cases where the nobility was so powerful that they could never get to the, uh, get to a strong centralized state. Only in England did you have a balance between a powerful monarchy and an equally powerful parliament that was held together uh, not just by economic interests. I mean, the parliament at that point represented not just the aristocracy and the gentry, but increasingly the bourgeois class that were allowed to uh, enter into um, uh, English, uh, uh, English politics. And religion was important because many of the members of parliament were, uh, were dissenting Protestants who believed that there was a Stuart conspiracy to turn the country back to Catholicism. And that also tremendously helped the solidarity uh, of, uh, of the English parliament. Uh, so, you know, short of the story is uh, they fight a civil war. They lop off Charles I's head. Uh, uh, Charles II gets restored, uh, and then James II, an, a Catholic king, uh, tries to build an army, and Parliament once again says, no, you don't. <laughs> We're not going to have uh, another Stuart overreach, and they bring in William of Orange from the Netherlands uh, to, uh, be the new, uh, to be their new monarch. Now, I actually didn't realize this, but I gave a lecture at Leiden last year. So John Locke was living in Leiden, uh, prior to uh, William of Orange returning to um, England. And in fact, John Locke was on the same ship that William was on. And um, 
you know, in, in some sense, you know, one way to read the second treatise on government is as a theoretical justification for what the English parliament uh, had just done. I mean, basically, the, the, the principle uh, of, of um, no taxation without representation and legitimacy only with the consent uh, of the governed. All right. So John Locke uh, goes back. The parliament is established on this basis. It is less than 100 years until the American Revolution that is based on these Lockean principles. No taxation without representation and uh, legitimacy only with the consent of the governed. And so you're not really very far from modern democracy uh, at that point, but you wouldn't have gotten to that point if it had not been for what I think are some of these rather uh, accident, well, first of all, without the survival of this feudal institution, which now has spread all over the world in terms of parliaments and congresses and legislatures, uh, but, um, but also the particular circumstances in which they uh, emerged as a powerful block on, uh, on the state in, uh, uh, in England. I think these are some of the stories that lie behind the emergence of modern government. There's been you know, a decent amount of concern since this speech was delivered and, and really since 2016 over tendencies towards authoritarianism, you know, right, or, or kind of in the terms of, of your speech, maybe an empowering of the state and a weakening of these institutions of accountability in a number of countries. And I'm curious if you think there's any truth to that sort of assessment, that there's some kind of broad realignment happening. Well, no, there's no question that we've been in a democratic recession for the last 15 years where many democracies are going backwards into outright authoritarianism or into a grave weakening of institutions. But it's not all one phenomenon. What's going on in many liberal democracies is that the democratic part of the system is undermining the liberal part. That is to say, you have democratically elected leaders like Orban and Erdogan and Trump who have used their mandates to weaken the rule of law institutions that should be constraining them. And this is, you know, a very insidious process because it's really pitting two of the pillars against one another. Actually, the democratic pillar also weakens the state pillar as well because there's a effort to undermine the independence and impartiality of bureaucracies. So that's a separate political process that's driven by the rise of populism in certain democracies. And, you know, it should be distinguished from what's going on in other parts of the world. To touch a little bit more on this question of the rule of law, one kind of happy accident in this narrative we have is uh, the balance that gets struck by English monarchy and its parliament. You know, the parliament is sort of an excellent example of these accountability institutions. And then the notion of a parliament spreads to many new places around the world, including our own legislature. Given that standard of that historical balance that was struck, do you think that the current you know, U.S. legislature operates adequately as one of those accountability institutions for our executive? Well, I do think that you need to step back a little bit from recent developments and ask whether the check and balance institutions in the United States are working adequately. We have this very elaborate constitutional system in which majoritarian government is constrained by a lot of rules, by law and by elections. And the checks and balances are meant to prevent the emergence of unconstrained executive power. I think that our current president has been doing a lot to try to 
weaken those institutions of constraint, you know, not answering congressional subpoenas, I think dodging what should have been a pretty slam dunk impeachment and the like. But in the end, he's not been all that successful. I think the most important check in the American system is an electoral check. And if he loses on November 3rd, then I think the system ultimately will have been weakened and challenged, but ultimately would have held together. And I think that, you know, it would be proof of the kind of wisdom of the sort of separation of powers theory that underlay the writing of the American Constitution. Speaking of, of sort of juridical legal systems here, we're, we're sort of speaking about them instrumentally, right? The ways that they operate as, as checks and restraints, sort of divorced from questions of, well, normative discussion, of the, sort of their justice. But I'm curious what that relationship is between political order and justice, in your view, if there's, it can political order persist with an unjust rule of law? And is something along the lines of justice possible without what you'd identify as political order? Well, this is going to sound a little bit relativistic, but I am afraid that if you look at the course of human history, this turns out to be true, that we do have changing views of what justice is. And so the legitimacy, for example, of monarchy was assumed in virtually every society around the world in certain historical periods. Today, we regard the will of the people expressed through elections as a source of legitimacy. And so we've got a very different understanding of the kind of fundamental foundations of the justice of a political system. And that has changed. It's not as if there's a Western pattern that has remained constant because the belief in monarchy really persisted up until the last couple of hundred years of, of Western political history. You know, similarly, notions about gender equality, racial equality, all of those things in our very recent history were regarded, you know, the justice of different arrangements was regarded very, very differently in our own societies, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, women not having the right to vote. So I think that the structures by which societies organize power is a it's a separate question from the normative evolution of ideas of justice, mm. presumably you want to have both. You want to have a political structure that separates powers and uses law to constrain the power of the state, but you also want that law to be normatively the right law. Let me um, conclude by giving you a couple of examples of how uh, this matters for the uh, contemporary world. Let's take India versus China. Uh, you know, this has been the subject of every emerging markets course in a business school over the last 15, 20 years, like which one of these will do better. Uh, and many people, you know, so we know that India is a rule of law democracy. Uh, in fact, the Indians probably have too much rule of law. I mean, it, <laughs> most litigants die before their cases come, come to court. Uh, but they definitely have rule of law, and they definitely have a very vigorous um, uh, if somewhat, you know, low-quality uh, democracy. And so it is, it is a real uh, uh, liberal democracy. China, on the other hand, is an authoritarian country, uh, which I believe, you know, the current Chinese Communist Party rules in the same dynastic tradition that was established 2,300 uh, years ago. Meritocracy, uh, promotion by, you know, um, examination, uh, a civil service, uniform uh, civil service, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, now, one of the big 
points of comparison between India and China is on something like infrastructure. So when the Chinese uh, want to do something like build the Three Gorges Dam, uh, you know, this is a monstrous project that involved moving 1.3 million people out of the floodplain. It took them 10 years, but they did it. They just did it, you know. Uh, and all of those people that were moved, uh, they basically, they tried to complain and stamp their feet, but they, they couldn't do it because it's an authoritarian government and they could, the, the Chinese government could, could actually, uh, get away with this. In India, uh, in a certain sense, they're at the other end of the scale because they can't get infrastructure projects started in a sense because I think they have, uh, in a way, too much democracy and rule of law. So if you remember, the Tata Motor Company wanted to establish an, um, an assembly plant in West Bengal uh, two, three years ago, and they were immediately met by all of these protests um, uh, from uh, you know, peasants' associations, labor unions, lawsuits, uh, so, on, so on and so forth. This doesn't mean that things uh, um, uh, won't uh, change uh, in either country. And one of the, so this is the part why you have to stay tuned for volume two. Uh, from volume one, a lot of the reviewers said, well, this is very historically determinist uh, kind of book. Uh, you're kind of saying that what countries are in the present uh, is determined by what happened, you know, two, three thousand years ago, and aren't societies capable of changing? And my answer to that is yes, of course they are, because something really important happened in around the year 1800, uh, which was the Industrial Revolution. Because once you have the Industrial Revolution, all bets are off. The kind of mobility and social mobilization, social change that um, that modern capitalism creates uh, vastly um, uh, restacks the deck uh, in terms of political actors. I think in terms of social change, when you have increases in income, education, connection to the world, all of these things that define a middle-class society, uh, the long-term historical uh, continuities, uh, you know, a lot of them can actually... Uh, be swept away. Uh, and that's why I think that uh, you really have to stay tuned for the kinds of social change. I think you'd be foolish to, um, you'd be foolish to not uh, take into account uh, the weight of history in uh, these societies, but uh, that's not the end of the story. The final thing I want to say just is about uh, a comparison of China and the U.S. So if you think about China and the U.S., China is way over on this side in terms of a strong state, no rule of law, no democratic accountability, right? Uh, so they can make decisions, you know, pretty rapidly. They've, their macroeconomic policy has been pretty good, I'd say, over the last 30 years in terms of shepherding that country through an enormous uh, economic uh, transition. Uh, I would say that even among um, Western democracies, if you think about checks and balances, the United States... Uh, because of its political tr traditions, has many more checks and balances than uh, do a British Westminster system. And I would say that one of the problems that we have to confront right now is whether, not that we want to learn from the Chinese, but whether, you know, in a sense, uh, we are suffering a little bit from of having uh, achieved a political system that is able to 
uh, make extremely difficult, you know, large, important political decisions and, um, you know, not force um, uh, decisions uh, that are necessary in terms of, you know, things like long-term fiscal health. But that's another big discussion, and uh, we're not going to get into that now. So thank you very much for your uh, attention. You first gave this speech, you know, in 2012. If you were to give the speech again, write the book again today in 2020, and had the chance to change any of its emphases or predictions it may make, would you make any major alterations? I don't think I'd make an alteration in the, the basic structure of the book. There's a theme that I dealt with in my original book, The End of History and the Last Man, and my last book, the book Identity, the demand for dignity and the politics of resentment that I don't stress very much in the political order books, which is this question of thumos. This is the part of the human psyche that demands respect and recognition of one's dignity, which both in my first book and in my last book, I stressed as an important driver of a lot of politics. You know, I mentioned recognition in the political order books, but it's not quite as central, although it does come out in certain you know, respects. So that, for example, nationalism, which has been one of the major organizing principles in the politics of Europe of the last you know, several centuries, is a form of recognition politics. It's cultural groups getting up and demanding that they be recognized by giving them a government that corresponds to their cultural boundaries. And that's obviously been a huge factor in recent politics. So I think that it is an issue that is a very big organizing principle in, in contemporary politics as well. Last thing I'll sort of ask, if you had anything else for our listeners who may tune in to think about in the context of your speech eight years later and, and the election, anything, any, anything you'd like to, <laughs> to drop? I would just say that if you like the origins of political order, you should read volume two, Political Order and Political Decay. I talked about political decay in volume one, but it becomes a kind of central theme in volume two, and particularly as applied to the United States, because I believe that our democratic institutions have been decaying over the last number of years, and that that process of decay has gotten more acute in recent times. And so societies can go forward and they can go backwards as well. And I think it's important to recognize that and then uh, to figure out a way to re reverse that decay in the present. Thanks again, Dr. Fukuyama. And thank you all for listening. We're recording in the week before the upcoming election, and I hope that this episode finds you in a political landscape more ordered than not. And I also hope that you'll join us next time on the Bradley Lectures podcast. Take care. <laughs>